disagree that you can't get in college. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science. And thanks again to Andre and Vijay for a breakfast show not to be missed. But now it's time for Discovery, the National Science Show. This week, we'll be looking at the exploits of Russian cosmonauts, the war against spam, and the tiny world of insects. Stick around. Welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome. To Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of the user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Uh, yeah. Once again, welcome to Discovery, bringing you more science than you can poke a stick at. I'm Matthew Clark, and this week we'll be waving that stick around at a couple of interesting topics such as jetting off into space with Yuri Gagarin, the ongoing battle against junk email, and we'll be looking at creepy crawlies and the people who study them. But before we can get to any of that, here's your weekly Discovery Science News with Catherine B. Hag. <laughs> Laughing is good medicine, even if it is forced. You may be aware of laughing clubs popping up all over the place where people congregate to laugh. You may think this is strange, but what is even stranger is that this laughing actually reduces the chance of depression and even has medical benefits to the people who participate in it. You may wonder how in the world does forcing yourself to laugh for no reason actually work? Well. Charles Scuffer, a psychology professor at Fairleigh Dix Dickinson University in Teaneck, New Jersey, explains that phony laughter has all the benefits of normal laughter because your body doesn't actually recognise it is fake, even though your brain might. This basically means that once the brain signals the body to laugh, the body doesn't care why. What happens physiologically when you laugh is endorphins are released. This means that just the physical act of laughing is going to relieve stress, as endorphins are neurotransmitters found in the brain that have pain-relieving properties similar to morphine. Laughter does not only relieve stress, but it even goes as far as reducing our risk of cardiovascular disease, as the act of laughing relaxes arteries and boosts blood flow. So ask yourself again, why did the chicken cross the road? Food is constantly on everyone's mind. The question scientists have been asking is why do we feel hungry, even if our stomachs have been surgically removed? Well, it seems to come down to a powerful hormone called ghrelin, also referred to as the hunger hormone. Now some of you will be thinking, wow, now we know one of the main culprits of why we have strong feelings of hunger, and lucky for us, there are already hormones in our body that are produced to curb ghrelin manufacture, such as insulin, which is made in the pancreas, leptin, which fat cells manufacture, and PYY, a gut hormone. But haven't all these hormones of hunger and hunger satisfaction always been around in our bodies? So why are we only now reaching an obesity epidemic? 
A study conducted on rats by David Cummings of the University of Washington, Seattle, and his co-workers suggests it is because we have changed to a high-fat diet. But why should this matter? Well, the research carried out by Cummings illustrates that fat is less effective than other nutrients, such as sugar and protein, at suppressing Grenland's hunger core. So, to reduce the obesity problem most Western countries are facing, we obviously just have to consume less McDonald's. Endocrinologist Stephen Bloom of Hammersmith Hospital in London explains how this is easier said than done. Bloom's team found that hunger and satiety signals don't function well in people that are already obese, and to make matters worse, the satiety signaling gut hormone PYY actually rises less in obese volunteers after consuming a meal. So basically, obese individuals remain hungry for longer and don't feel as full as quickly. No wonder these obese people find it hard to lose weight. But luckily, pharmaceutical companies have started developing gremlin blocking agents intended to reduce the feeling of hunger in overweight individuals. Many researchers are testing these substances on lab animals and results so far have seemed pretty promising. For example, research by Bloom found that after injecting participants with a satiety hormone PYY, their appetite was suppressed by 30% and, and in another experiment he showed that injecting rats with a fair amount of oxytomodulin, a stomach hormone which reduces grenland concentration and appetite in people, the rats actually stopped eating completely. So there is hope yet to solve the obesity problem we are facing. You may think that the slimy plant life floating around in the ocean, dubbed seaweed, may not make very interesting dinner conversation. If you are one of these people, well, you better think again. Because according to University of New South Wales researchers, these slimy green things may hold the key to slowing down the spread of bacterial infections. Studies have shown that they can do this by containing compounds called furanomes that stop bacteria from communicating. This is revolutionary, as the way bacterial infections spread is by so-called talking or signalling to each other. And as many of you listeners know, we are at present using antibiotics to treat bacterial infections, and due to overuse, bacteria are already beginning building up immunity to these drugs, such as the bacterial th bacteria that causes golden staph, food poisoning and tuberculosis. Scientists realise the future problems we have begun to enter. Well, the furanomes produced by seaweeds might just be the answer to this infectious future. What is even better about this discovery is that furanomes only jam the ability of microbes to send signals to each other. This is vital as it means the bacteria is not killed, thus resistance to the furanomes will not occur. My life is very important. I like pepperoni pizza. I go out with my mates on Friday. I'm getting a haircut tomorrow and sometimes I order a coffee with sugar. Then occasionally I look up at the sky and at the stars shining and I remember that we really are living on a tiny rock surrounded by vast emptiness. One after another spaceship set off from Earth into this vast emptiness pushing the boundaries of our engineering capabilities and redefining the limits of our knowledge. This highway to the heavens was forged 
40 years ago, on the 12th of April 1961. Here is Jackie Hayes to tell you about the first time a human ever left Earth. To most people of my generation, the name Neil Armstrong is synonymous with space exploration. Ask one of us who Yuri Gagarin is, and in most cases, you'll face blank stares. I don't know who is to blame for our ignorance, Pepsi, Hollywood, or violent video games, but it was this 27-year-old Soviet cosmonaut who was the first man in space. At 9.07 Moscow time, on the 12th of April 1961, the engines ignited and Gagarin began his journey. As he approached his maximum speed of 327 kilometers per hour, he spoke his first words, I see Earth. It's so beautiful. After circling the Earth once, reaching a maximum speed of 28,260 kilometers per hour, Gagarin began his descent. By 11 a.m. he had returned to Earth, with a trip time of 108 minutes. The rocket used to launch Gagarin was 38 meters long and weighed 287 tons at launch. Ma mounted on top of the rocket was Vostok 1, a small, one-manned spherical module with a diameter of only 2.3 meters. It was mounted on top of the engine system and Gagarin was strapped to an ejection street from which he would exit the descent module upon re-entry. So more or less, he was sitting in a tin can on top of a bomb. And if that doesn't make your skin crawl, think about the fact that no knowledge existed on how our mind or body would work once in space. The only test done on living creatures in space was on a dog who was launched into space on November 2nd in 1957. The Soviet officials claimed that the dog lived for a week after takeoff and died painlessly while in orbit, but evidence suggests that she may have lived for only a few hours and died from panic and overheating. Now the Soviets didn't want to risk having Gagarin lose control of himself and endangering the miss mission, so Gagarin actually had no control over the craft himself. There was a key available in a sealed envelope which enabled the cosmonaut to take control in case of an emergency. It, Vostok 1 also contained enough food and water for 10 days in the case of a retro-rocket failure. And in two out of the five test flights, the retro-rockets did not actually fire correctly. Luckily, this time it did. As Gagarin fell back towards Earth, he experienced 10 times the acceleration due to gra gravity, and he could see the flames as he travelled through the atmosphere. At an altitude of seven kilometers, he ejected from the descent module, and after falling another three kilometers while still strapped to his ejection, street, ejection seat, he launched the parachute. Details of this ejection were not released for several years after the flight, as the Air Sports Federation required pilots to remain in the craft until after landing in order to be eligible for the world space records. The first beings to see him return to Earth were an old woman, her daughter, and their cow. Yuri Gagarin was awarded the official title Hero of the Soviet Union. Ever since his historic flight, superstitious Russian cosmonauts have mimicked the routine Gagarin followed before his flight. The night before his trip, he watched the classic Soviet film White Desert of the Sun, and the next day, on his way to the launch pad, Gagarin stopped to answer the call of nature. Wearing his orange spacesuit, he clambered out of the bus and did so using a tube against the real wheel. Since then, all cosmonauts, man or woman, have followed both traditions. 
Even astronauts from the United States who are on joint missions with the International Space Station followed protocol. Yuri Gagarin's flight into space made news headlines all around the world, making a big impact on the United States. Gagarin beat the United States equivalent by less than a month. On the 5th of May 1961, Alan Shepard was carried into orbit on the Freedom 7 spacecraft in a flight that lasted a mere 15 minutes. 20 days after Alan Shepard's flight, President Kennedy set the United States on course for the moon. Every year, on the 12th of April, millions of people look to the skies and remember the flight that changed the course of history. In a relatively young tradition, which I hope will continue for decades to come, people around the world gather together to celebrate Yuri's night. Perhaps it is initiatives like this that will make my generation and those who follow us recognise the importance of the 12th of April. That was Jackie Hayes. If you'd like some more information about the, about the World Space Party, you can go to yurisnight.net. Sunday Bell by Audible 
And it turns out you're still listening to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. But make sure you stay tuned because coming up, we've got the fight against unwanted email. Insects and other creepy crawlies. Most of us would rather avoid them, but spare a thought for the people who devote their lives to studying them. Our Tasmanian correspondent, Taylor Bildstein, spoke to an expert on the subject. Well, my name is Bob Mesabov, and I'm more or less retired now, but I still work as an invertebrate zoologist. So for people around Tasmania who might hang out in their back garden or in bush nearby or in a creek, what type of little critters might they be seeing that would be invertebrate zoology? Well, most people are familiar with invertebrates. They know them in their gardens as the flies and bees that visit their flowers. And if they're fishermen, they know them as the things they offer to trout as bait, mayflies and earthworms and things. And what projects are you working on lately? I'm spending much more time in what's called taxonomy, which is the uh, discovery and description of new species and the revision of existing classifications. So if you ask me what I'm working on at any, any given day, what I'm probably doing is writing a paper describing new species of Tasmanian animals. What type of animals have you been describing most recently? Mainly millipedes. Tasmania has a native fauna of millipedes with a lot of species, probably in the order of 160 or more native species, most of which have never been previously described. They have no names and they're very obscure little creatures. They're hard to find. What are your favorite Tasmanian invertebrates? I suppose I'd have to say millipedes. Um, they're very interesting animals. We now know from some recently discovered fossils that they're among the first animals to have walked on land. What they were doing then, a long, long time ago, more than 400 million years ago, in, uh, in a landscape that didn't have any of the forests or other things we'd recognize today, I have no idea. All we know is that they're around then and that they haven't changed very much. They're very successful creatures. They live quiet little obscure lives, munching away on dead plants and plant litter. And they have a spectacular species diversity. There are just many, many different species of millipedes in the world. How many invertebrates would you estimate are yet to be identified in the Tasmanian wilderness? I think Tasmanian wilderness would be the last place I'd look for new species of invertebrates. The eastern settled parts of the state actually have more species of invertebrates, if you like, per square kilometer than the western parts. There are a number of reasons for that. The climate's a bit better, there's a greater diversity of habitats. There are also historical reasons. The West got hammered during the glacial periods with very bad climates, whereas there are plenty of refuges in the mountains of the east. So what I'm saying is there are more invertebrates, or there were more before European settlement, in the eastern half of the state than in the western half. And unfortunately, that's where most of the settlement has been, in eastern and northern Tasmania. Farmers have cleared more land, and there are more towns and cities in the east. Therefore, the species that were there, those many species that we still don't know about, I've got to go and look for before they disappear. So when you say the mountains on the east, are you talking about St. Helens and St. Mary's? Uh, that's one area. I discovered through my invertebrate surveys that the St. Mary's area particularly is an especially interesting area. It's almost like a, it almost has its own fauna. 
because the invertebrates around St. Mary's are found nowhere else in the world. There are some extraordinary species there. The St. Helens area, the mountains behind St. Helens as well. So is that what keeps you busy now, uh, looking for invertebrates on the east coast of Tasmania? And the north. I spend almost all of my field time now knocking on farmers' doors and saying, um, excuse me, I'm from the Queen Victoria Museum, do you mind if I collect bugs in that little gully you've got over there in the sheep paddock? The bush remnants that I look in are things are areas that farmers will never use their bush because they just weren't of any value for agriculture. That's where these creatures are surviving and that's where I collect them. And the nice thing is that in, in uh, all my years of knocking on farmers' doors in Tasmania with that line, I've never been knocked back. People are very friendly and uh, interested in what I'm doing and happy to let me collect bugs on their properties. Dr. Bob Mezebov, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Bob Mezebov, speaking with Taylor Bildstein. This interview was produced with the Commonwealth Government's National Innovation Awareness Strategy. Generic Viagra, cheap meds, enlarge your penis. These are the calling cards of spam. The electronic pest which is currently has a stranglehold on the world's email and communication systems. Spam is unsolicited email. Basically, anything that makes its way into your inbox that you didn't ask for or from someone you don't know. One of the big problems, however, is that this is not a hard and fast rule. We simply can't block all email from anyone we don't know because this would make everyday communications pretty difficult. If you had a look at all the emails you send and receive over a week, a fair amount of them would be from people who are not in your address book. So if we simply can't block all emails except from people we know, we really have to do the opposite. We need to allow all emails except those we know are spam. But that's the tricky part. How do you know what's spam and what isn't? But more importantly, how do you tell a computer what's spam and what isn't? It's very easy for us to look at our inbox and decide what's spam or not, because on average, humans are a lot smarter than computers. For a computer though, it's pretty hard to judge whether an email advertising a website that will hook you up with a lonely housewife in your area is spam or not. I suppose for some people it isn't. So we have to tell our computers what to look for. What kinds of things spam emails have to say that an email from your boss or a client doesn't. Up until recently, we've been blocking spam by simply targeting words which we don't expect to find in real email. Words like Viagra, cheap prescriptions, or a whole range of sexually explicit phrases. If you'd like a list of these sexually explicit phrases which we can't put to air, you can email us on discovery at 2 But because spam comes from other people who are also, on average, smarter than a computer, this doesn't work very well anymore, because spammers will simply change the spelling of these words so a computer won't recognise them. Things like replacing the I in Viagra, or the L in long-lasting with a 1. Things that a human is able to recognise easily, but a computer can't. And so begins the arms race in the spam war. The next escalation in this war has seen spammers defeat even our most complex word and phrase recognition technology by simply not using text in their emails anymore. If you take a careful look at a lot of the spam you receive these days, 
you'll find that what looks like text inside the email is actually a picture. Carefully crafted images that look exactly like they were typed into the email. These types of emails are not picked up by the spam filters because they are unable to read the words inside the picture. But once again, a human can read them just fine, so they still achieve their purpose. So what's the next move? Who's going to throw the next punch? Well, the makers of anti-spam technology are slowly coming to the conclusion that they're never going to win if they keep following their current direction. As we've learned from a number of past and present military conflicts around the world, if you can't identify who your enemy is before they've already attacked you, how can you expect to beat them? The next step in the evolution of our anti-spam defences may actually forget all about what's inside the emails. If they contain the latest exploits of Paris Hilton or links to websites that will supply you with cheap Xanax, so be it. But what will happen is that when that email is sent, your server will not accept it until the mail server that sent it to you solved a small puzzle. What will this achieve, I hear you ask? Well, think of spam's smaller scale cousin. The junk mail that arrives in your home mailbox. Imagine if every time the person who stuffed a Kmart catalogue into your mailbox had to work out the square root of pi and then divide it by the number of minutes it was past Greenwich Mean Time. How many of those catalogues would get delivered? Unless Stephen Hawking was scooting around doing the delivering, not many. This is the principle behind the latest line of defence. Basically, if someone wants to spam millions of people at a time, their mail server is going to have to solve millions of these little puzzles for their annoying messages to be delivered. And even with today's ultra-high-speed computers, this is simply not possible or would be far too costly, while normal email usage would be barely affected, if at all. Well, that's the theory anyway. But, of course, as soon as someone builds a bigger gun than yours, the obvious response is to build an even bigger one yourself. it's time to say goodbye from all of us here at Team Discovery. If you'd like some more information on any of the stories we featured today, if you'd like us to pass on your best wishes to the happy royal couple, or if you're wondering when Discovery is going to topple the wiggles from their current spot as Australia's richest entertainers, you can drop us a line on discovery at 2SCR.com. Warming the seats on this week's show were Catherine Behag, Jackie Hayes and Taylor Bilstein. This week, Discovery was produced by David Huang up here in the ritzy studios of 2SCR Sydney and we're also broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Matthew Clark, and make sure to join us next week for more science news and excitement on Discovery. Discovery.